Hey, welcome to the show, and this is the Metaphorical Throat Clearing. We are going to have a fantastic conversation today. Thanks for listening to TRBM. What's new? Just wanted to let you know I am featuring another author swap in today's episode of the podcast. So if you get the email, all you have to do is click on the link that says download and read a free novel, Gone Away by Elizabeth Noble. We're doing another newsletter swap. My first one was with Audrey Walker. Very successful. If you are an author and you can access BookFunnel for your eBooks, this is a great way to build a list with people who have shared reading interests. So for me, I write mysteries, or right now I write mysteries, and I'm able to access audiences of other writers who read mysteries, thrillers, suspenseful books. If you like my work, you're probably going to like Elizabeth Noble's work. Sign up to grab a free copy of that book in the show notes or the email you get if you are subscribed to my Substack, which is where I host my podcast. I've said it before. I'll continue to say it. If you're not subscribed to Substack, but you're listening to this podcast, you're only getting about 50% of the content I put together for you on a regular basis. There's all kinds of rich information that I maybe don't cover in as much depth on the spoken part of the podcast. And that's all going to come into an email for you on Mondays and Wednesdays. With that in mind, remember that this is TRBM Ammo Edition. So I'm always going to be focusing on direct fulfillment at some level, how you can own your audience. If you're interested in learning how to make a full-time living as a novelist or really any kind of author that publishes books, Ammo Foundations is a great place to create the living you always dreamed of. You're the author who thinks, I don't know how I'm ever going to make a living selling books. This is for you. There's links in the show notes, again, in the email for Ammo Foundations. I highly highly recommend you look it up. I am early in my own author journey as far as publishing books goes, and I'm already making a profit selling my novels. Yesterday, I sold 12 books, which was pretty good given it was a holiday. I'm averaging about 17 books a day, and you can do it too. Have a look at the program and see what it has to offer, because I can't think of a better living than writing novels. And if you're listening to this show, you probably feel similarly, is my guess. All right. So on to my guest. His name is Terry Friedman. He has a very traditional, very enjoyable, dry sense of humor. I think you're going to get a lot of laughs. But what I want you to pay the most attention to is that Terry's newsletter, Eclecticism, Reflections on Literature and Life, is the best example of a way to own an audience, which Substack allows you to own your audience, and to create close friendships and relationships with readers. There's no newsletter I can think of that's not by somebody who's a household name that has more engagement in the comments. Terry is always engaging with other writers on Substack. He's getting 10, 15, 20 comments per post in his Substack. He owns a decent sized audience. He has the ability to speak to people and give them value, and he's making money doing it. So that's another avenue that you can use is Substack. I'm using it for this podcast. It's helped me to grow to the next level. It could really be a great option for you. And last but not least, make sure to check out his class, Writing the Olipo, a taster. This is a really cool concept. He's going to talk more about it in the show, so I'm not going to go super into depth here. But if you've ever struggled with writer's block or something similar, the Olipo is a really great way to have a tool that you can get yourself out of writer's block and start to craft stories without so much friction. Check that out. There will be a link 
in the show notes. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Terry Friedman. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. That reminds me of the great stories we heard of the West, when it turns out those places are nothing of the sort. TRBM is for writing, what time lapse was for painting, what guitar, solo, and spotlight were for bands, and what the chainsaws and the ice blocks were for the sculptors. What does the TRBM stand for? To anti rice balls more thing? Right rules, bully mainstreamers? Or twin royal Brahmin members? You decide. One of my colleagues came up to me and he said, I really like your podcast. And I said, oh, really? Why? He said, because it's so amateurish, it makes me feel even I oh. could do it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but the thing is, though, I was actually saying this to someone the other day. Part of it was deliberate because at the mm-hmm. time, See, I, I come from a teaching background, and I'm also of the opinion that, um, uh, I mean, teachers have incredibly low self-esteem, I've found. Mm. If you say to a teacher, that's a brilliant idea, why don't you start a blog? Oh, no, no, no one will want to know what I've got to say. Mm. I, 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 I want to know what you've got to say. Um, by the same token, I think what's better than a a teacher showing other teachers what to do through a video or a podcast or something like that. It's not not like someone from on high coming down and telling them. Uh, And at the time I was what was called an advisor, um, information and communications technology advisor for schools in a local borough. Mm -hmm. So my job was to go to the schools to see the teachers who were in charge of information technology and to give them ideas about how they could get it, uh, how they could do it better. But at the time, the government in England, or one of its agencies, were, uh, or a couple of its agencies, were producing these really kind of slick, high-powered videos that probably cost thousands, if not millions, to produce. Yes. And part of my aim in life was to say, you don't need all that. You can right. use a phone, or what was in those days, a flip camera recorder, get a decent mic, and then record your thoughts. So, yeah, it's yeah. going to sound amateurish. Uh, you know, you're not trying to be on the BBC or something. Yeah. But if it gets the point across, who cares? Yeah, I mean, and especially if it gets the point across and there's some factor of entertainment, which often entertainment is just knowing your audience and, and speaking to those people. What's what's entertaining to you and I might not be entertaining to my brother-in-law. Um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's not. And so I, I do think that I've, uh, I've followed a kind of a similar, uh, philosophy with this podcast, especially the last year. Uh, I, the, the editing is really minimal. If somebody uses a little bit too much filler language, sometimes I will, I will kind of reduce that a little bit. I'll cut some of that out. If somebody takes a bit longer to think, sometimes I will shorten silences, but as much as possible, I try to keep these conversations fairly faithful to how they rolled out in real time. Mm. My my only thing is so when I get a bit nervous, there's lots of ums and ahs and things. <laughs> I suppose a lot of people do that. The filler type language. I had a, a guy actually, his episode aired today. When listening through it, he did say, um, like quite a bit. And I know him not to be that person. So I understood that it was uh, a recording tick almost. Yes. Just out of interest, how, how's your book coming along and the, uh, the, the, the promotion thereof? Yeah. So the, the nine lives of Marva DeLonghi has been, I think, everything in terms of good and bad and, and a learning experience. Uh, right now, 
I am kind of like a magical unicorn in that the book is actually profitable. So I spend money on advertising and I make more money on my ads than I, than I spend on them. So uh, that's subject to change. It's been a really maddening experience. Uh, I had a a friend of mine um, recently put a a post out on Substack, which I never know what to talk. uh, We'll put a pin in this. I never know what to call them essays or uh, articles. I I just like, I don't know what to call Substack. Um, But anyways, I know I'm the same. And I call them articles, posts, newsletters. I have no idea. Yes, exactly. Um, so this this friend was saying that he had gotten too focused on sales and that he kind of lost the vision of what writing was all about. And I thought, that's the kind of clever, weird place that we are as writers. I think that you maybe can identify with this as well. Um, sales are indicative of reaching an audience that's willing to pay for our thoughts. And there's mm. something very right about that. You know, you're doing a good job when people are willing to pay for your thoughts. So getting it out in front of them and testing that and doing a great job um, should be to some degree rewarded. Um, but I understand where he's coming from because there isn't a day that goes by where at least part of my brain isn't wondering, have I made some sales yet? Have I made some sales yet? Mm. Uh, so that's a really long-winded way of answering your question. I, I am really pleased with how it's going, and I, I certainly hope to continue gaining more momentum. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Did you? How much further have you read into it? I, I wouldn't be bothered if you never picked it up again, but just curious. No, no, I, I, um, I, I haven't read much more than the last time we spoke, with ten percent or whatever it was, and I keep mm-hmm. thinking I want to go back to it yeah. because I love the writing and I love that form of writing. You know, it just struck me as like. If Raymond Chandler found himself in a time machine transported yeah. to the present day, that's exactly how. And I love Raymond Chandler. You know, I love all of that. The only thing is that recently I started this course, um, literature course, mm-hmm. and it's called Writing Modern Britain. Uh, and it and it con- it covers five novels which deal with multi- multiculturalism in Britain. And they're all famous novels. Like the first one we did was The Buddha of Suburbia. Right. Everyone's heard of it. I haven't met a single person who's actually read it, but everyone's heard of it. I just thought, look, I'm going to sign up for this course because it will force me to read these books. I'm not going to sit in a class and not say anything. Right. But of course, you get these big, thick books, 300 pages, and you have to read them in two weeks. Yeah. So it's kind of occupied my mind a bit. I agree with you, too, in taking courses. I've done that before and taking courses where I thought if I don't do this, I'll never read these these books. Exactly. There was French surrealists. I took a class that was very largely on the surrealist poets for that very reason. I thought, I want to know this, but I can't think of any other way that I'll dive into it. And it was deeply rewarding. Yeah. Just out of interest, what happened to, uh, what's happening about your um, Kickstarter campaign? Okay. So I have not fully committed to it yet because I have... Exe Sands reading my audiobooks. She's won some awards. She's read for some really great authors. It's a, a huge opportunity for me. It's not without cost to, to have her narrate them. And so I was looking at ways to try to offset the, the production cost by pre-selling them. One of the things that's really challenging with Kickstarter and that I haven't personally figured the, the code out to is that essentially they've created this thing where you need to fulfill your campaign goal within the first 48 hours of launching or Kickstarter kind of buries it and your chances of ever, ever hitting it or exceeding it are really small. So I was spending all this time trying to figure out how do I, like, how do you get somebody interested in 
a Kickstarter that's supposed to promote something that isn't even out. Like I have to pre-sell a pre-sale. And that started kind of confusing my mind a little bit. So I'm still doing a little bit of work on it. And I have yourself and and a couple of other people that have agreed to let their readers know uh, when I go forward with it. But yeah, like I'm just so scared that if I don't hit that contribution level within the first 48 hours, then it'll be a waste of everybody's time. Um, that sounds to me like you need about, um, you know, you need to be JK Rowling before you do like a Kickstarter camp. You know, how, yeah. how are relatively normal, ordinary mortals like us? <laughs> yeah. You know, unless your campaign is to raise, I don't know, $500 for for um, mm-hmm. a kidney transplant for a child, then you might hit that in 48 hours. But Right. Do you know what I mean? A, a, yes. a, a book by someone who isn't J.K. Rowling, and you know, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I, it seems to me to be um, well. I don't know Kickstarter. Perhaps I'm speaking yeah. out, to, but, but sounds to me a little bit cynical. To be honest, I mean, yeah, I there's anyone could meet that goal. There are interesting things that are happening. I've had a couple of guests on the podcast who have done well with it. I have a lady coming up who has been uh, really successful with it. The book that I am selling, The Nine Lives of Marvin Longhai, I sell it direct. So the majority of my readers come off of an ad that I target fans of of Raymond Chandler or Dennis Lehane, um, those kind of writers. And then they, they land on a sales page and decide if they want to buy. And if they do, they never interact with Amazon in any way. They buy it directly from my Shopify store and I fulfill paperback copies right here from my office or ebooks come through BookFunnel. And that's that's successful. And I get to keep 97% of every sale that I make. Mm. Uh, so basically, it's just the credit card transaction that Shopify keeps. And that's really nice because it it makes you to a point where you can be profitable on selling books a lot faster than other people. Um, but then if you do Kickstarter, they keep 10% of your campaign. So there's part of me that, that starts to wonder, like, is that necessarily the best way to go? Because I can slow sell these and not necessarily have to pay that 10% and also not worry if... 500 people decide to buy one of the, the the audiobooks right out the door. It's it's hard to say. Kickstarter has its place because you can reach uh, an organic audience through the Kickstarter platform itself, but the pressure of doing it correctly is more frightening than I would have expected. Mm, very interesting. So talk a little bit about why you got interested in teaching and specifically pedagogy, because that's some that's something of interest to you for sure. I didn't do too well at school. In, hmm. in fact, I was a complete and utter failure, quite frankly. Wow. Um, I, no, I really was. I mean, I, I left. We have in this country, um, or we had in those days, something called O levels, ordinary levels. I, I left. I left with two, uh, and they weren't that good grades anyway. Uh, it's like five years of my life wasted in secondary school, you know, useless. Mm. But anyway, after a year working, um, my parents encouraged me to go back to college. And there, I actually thrived because we were teaching taught like adults, treated mm. like adults. Um, and then I went on to another college to do what was called A-levels, advanced levels. And... Um, and I really enjoyed that. And 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 towards the end of that, uh, that that two years, a group of us were chatting to the English teacher, someone called John Tipping. I don't suppose he's alive now, but um, and he said, "Oh well, next year it'll be another bunch of students cover the syllabus again." 
And I said, God, it must get really boring doing the same thing each year, every year, year in, year out. And I don't know if you ever, Jody, if you ever see these films where someone starts making a speech and their eyes glaze over and there's a Welsh choir in the background. <laughs> it, it was like that. He said, no, Terry, every year is different. Every student is different. Mm. Um, it's just fantastic and wonderful. And I thought, this is the job that I want to do. Mm. And and from then onwards, I just worked and worked and worked, got, the, got my degree, got the teaching qualification and just loved it, lo- lo- loved every minute. And I, and I loved um, teaching the kids, you know, teaching, interacting with, I, I taught secondary schools. And um, I used to do these mad things with them, you know, like, um, but they weren't really so mad. My, my aim really was to get them to think. My originally, my original um, subject was economics, mm. and I wanted to get, I wanted to train them not as people who could do economics in an exam, but economists in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do things like in, in 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 one school, I had two parallel classes. I had um, a class before the morning break on a Wednesday and a class after the morning break on a Wednesday. And on one day I told the class before break that the unemployment statistics are always overrated. And I gave them all the reasons why, why the reason why the statistics that you read are completely inflated. Uh, it's mm. nothing like that. And the, <laughs> the group after break, I told them the Unemployment figures are always understated. The government doesn't really want you to know the true scale of the problem. I gave them all the facts and figures to prove that and then just waited. And the next day, there was a delegation at the staff room from both groups saying, he told us completely opposite things. What's the answer? I said, do you really think I'd be teaching you here if I knew what the answer was? I'd be advising the government, but let's talk about it. And that was my approach, really, you know, question everything. And it was really, really enjoyable. I loved it. Um, Then I I became, as I say, became what was called an advisor, um, because this is going to sound incredibly big-headed. I thought I was very, very good at my job. I I changed by then to teaching computing and information technology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had some great ideas, and I just wanted to spread them more widely. You know, yeah. and I think also you get to a point. I'd been teaching in the classroom for twenty-two years at that time, and I think there does come a point where you, you kind of become not sure. Tired is quite the right word, but where you feel that you've done your bit, you've done enough, and and it's time for a little bit of a change. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there was also the other thing that I used to take great satisfaction in is that I was always good with a really with, with the kids nobody else wanted. Mm-hmm. So I was always given those classes and we used to have, oh, wow. like, you know, I, I just, because I always thought, well, most children aren't really nasty. They may have been given a raw deal in life, or maybe they're doing a lot of caring at home or, or maybe they come to school without any breakfast or something, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I came in one day and uh, first lesson in the classroom, and this was my approach of dealing with things. Um, Kid walked in, 15 years old or something. I said, good morning. He said, F off. I don't want to swear on your podcast. I said, hang (laughs) on a minute. I said, said, I'm a human being like you. 
I'm sorry if you've had a rough start to the day. Yeah. But I've just said good morning. And, you know, then you tell me to F off. Do you think that's right? And he said, no, sir. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what. Why don't we start again? Let's pretend this didn't happen. You go out. Mm. Then you come in. I'll say good morning. We'll take it from there. Yeah. And that's what we did. We had a great lesson. You know, the lesser, you know, point was made. Yeah. Okay, so I have to ask this question because it's been burning from from the the minute you started talking about your way into teaching is what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because right now you're writing a prolonged series on your substack called Experiments in Style, which is influenced by um, Raymond Quino. Uh, he wrote a book, I think it is called Experiments in Style, right? And it's 99 retellings of the same event from yeah, uh, a different style. Yes. Exercises, right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so I've been I've been reading along, following along with these for a while, and it seems to me that that's almost your filter for the world. I'm wondering, is that because you're so deeply into it right now, or has that been with you for so long? Um, I'm not sure. I'm really, really fascinated by it. And, and I mean, I love writing, as you may have kind of gathered, because yeah. uh, I, I seem to do a lot of it. And um, um, one of the things I like also writing about is book reviews. Um, and I'm always interested in, you know, I can read a passage and think, well, that's a really great passage, but then I want to know, well, why is it a great passage? How does it actually work? Um, and I found that doing these experiments in style helps me to understand that because if I'm, you know, like everyone says, for example, don't use the passive voice, use the Mm -hmm. active voice. Okay. Well, we all take it for granted, but what happens if you write the story only using the passive voice, you know, like you push it to the extreme, well, it's bloody boring. Excuse my language. It just is. It's got no, <laughs> yeah. There's no dynamic there. You know, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you actually see, when you actually see it in writing, you think, wow, that is one boring story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's because it's so passive. Um I mean, the other thing, I mean, I don't know if you've had a, oh, you have had a chance to read it because I, I saw you liked it. I, I recently wrote two book reviews of that story, one mm-hmm. incredibly negative and one <laughs> fairly positive. Yeah. Same. And what fascinates me, Jody, is, right, look, there you have exactly the same facts. I was very true to the facts in each of those reviews. Yeah. One was absolutely scathing. You'd never touch a book by that author again. Yeah. And the other one you'd be ordering their next book as soon as it was announced. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the difference? It was just very, very few words, very few phrases that made all that difference. So I think that kind of analytical approach is is really worthwhile, you know. Plus, mm-hmm. of course, it's really enjoyable. I mean, I think you commented on on the one I did, which was done as a court pr- procedure. Yes, yes. And I really enjoyed doing that, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, that was great fun. And it's like, how can you take something, an anecdote, which is inherently boring? <laughs> I mean, all that happened was I banged my head, got a headache, went to the hospital. They said, yeah, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's it. Um, yeah. how, can you, how can you how can you make that actually interesting? Yeah. Um, and you've you've done phenomenally with it and you've written it in so many different styles. Like you said, the court procedural, I mean, it, it, because I'm on the spot, I can't list all of the different ways, but you've been doing it for a while now. Uh, and uh, it's, it shows you that mundane instances can have a ton of meaning depending on what we, what we 
view in them. Like I'm, I'm thinking uh, people who listen to my podcast have heard me talk about this lately, but there was a little trough for a while where I wasn't selling any of my books, despite feeling like I was doing all the right things. And I finally regressed to probably what is like my furthest point where I started thinking I must be cursed. This must be a spiritual thing and I'm actually <laughs> cursed, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think that those are the kind of uh, experiments and style that happen in our lives. And uh, I guess maybe it is your writing that has called my attention to it uh, in my own life. But I was hearing you talk about that kid coming into to class and saying F off and saying, hey, let's try the style on this differently. Uh, <laughs> and how that changed everything yeah <laughs> sometimes the way you frame things just you know changes everything really and I'm, i I do try and apply it in my everyday life because um not, not always with great success like it, if someone is rude to me on a bus or something um i do have a choice i can either be incredibly annoyed about it all day long hmm. and and beat myself up over why I didn't say something and potentially get knifed in the process. <laughs> or I can say, look, maybe he just um, didn't have a good night's sleep or something, you know, I'm never no. going to see him again. And th this kind of thing, I, I go, well, I suppose I shouldn't um, admit this on a podcast, but I think not the week goes by when I don't think to myself, why am I doing this Substack thing? Mm. I've had three comments Half the people I sent it to didn't even open it. Uh, mm. Why am I bothering? You know, I could kind of put my feet up and mm. you know, do something else. Yeah. Um, but then, I don't know, I'll have a good breakfast or go for a walk or whatever, and I think, you know, no, let, let, let's keep on. Or I got a really nice comment. And it, it's not good, I think, in a way, being tossed about by these kind of vicissitudes of life. But maybe it's just normal and everything. I don't, I don't know if other people go through it, but I certainly do. I certainly think, you know, no one's reading my stuff. Why am I bothering? And then realize, well, people must be. I discovered something years ago. I wrote this book called Managing ICT, Information Communications Technology, right? It's not quite as boring as it sounds, but if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're, well, it is actually, but if you're leading, if you're, if you're managing computing in a school, this book at the time would help you. It just literally went through point by point what you need to do to make sure your department runs smoothly. Um, I got a few reviews. It did sell quite well. No feedback. And then, um, but what I noticed was a couple of times, and I thought, well, no one's read it. You know, I've just had a couple of reviews, but no, no one's read it or anything. Um a conference, someone came running up to me and said, are you Terry Friedman? I said, well, I don't know, it depends. Are you the type? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, they said, no, no, I've read your books. Fantastic. It's brilliant. Um, and then someone else um, at another conference said, oh, you're Terry Friedman. He, he said, no, it's a she. She said, I, I've been following you from day one. I subscribed to your newsletter. You're the reason I did a master's in uh, computing wow. education. You think, well, look, most people don't say anything. Mm -hmm. um, you could yeah. be having this influence without even knowing it. And that's why mm -hmm. one of the things I try and do, especially with newish people on Substack, yeah. is I try and um, mention them in my newsletter or uh, I'll, in my own Substack, you know, or yeah. I'll leave comments saying, I really enjoyed this. Because otherwise, how are they going to know? 
Yes. Yeah, I do as well. Um, I, I have taken the philosophy more on Substack maybe than anywhere else of, of subscribing to somebody if I'm interacting and they have a, a stack and I will try to go in and at least read one a month is kind of what I'm thinking right now and really like dig in. Um, I read my favorites, pretty much everything they put out. I don't always comment if I'm pretty regular. Like I, I comment on maybe every third or fourth of yours, I think at this point, but um you can't comment it, on everything, Joe. No, you right. there all day and night. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I guess I think I think that your your point though is is taken, and that I I think it's really so valuable for people to hear and and know in all areas of life. If you have engaged with something in a meaningful way, even two words of like uh, great posts, it just goes such a long way to make you know I am not all alone in this place doing this to amuse myself and nothing else. Um, mm. Yeah, it's just, it's a the powerful other thing. thing. That, that goes along with that, I think, is um, I go to the office hours thing more or less every week. Mm-hmm. And there's usually someone there who says, um, uh, you know, I, I, it, it took me ages to um, push this post, put this post out because, you know, I'm just mm. really worried about people's reaction. And my response, and it's absolutely true, is that I've been – being published in magazines and things and had blogs for years and years and years. Um, Every single time I'm about to hit publish, I think, is this the one that's going to end my career? Is this where (laughs) I'm cancelled? Is this where I get a huge load of invective? Or is this the one that just bombs Mm. and no one even notices? Oh, wow. Um, Every Literally, well, not maybe every single time, but certainly every time I send a magazine, uh, a review to a magazine, I think, mm. is it going to come back with tons of edits all over it? And the editor telling me, look, you know, maybe it's time we parted company. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's the lot of the writer, to be honest, unless you're, uh, unless you've got an incredibly huge ego, I, I think you're never going to get over that. Yeah. I think that's true. And I, I do, I mean, I actually do have a really huge ego. I, I try to be pretty pretty open about that. <laughs> uh, it still still rips me apart all the time. I mean, um, I've talked about it a lot on on the show even recently. But knowing that that my book is out there and and like what words what could someone ever say that would be enough for me to feel like oh okay my book is is actually good you know because you can have positive reviews and then you always are thinking well they didn't say this about the book so they probably are just trying to be nice you know. Well, uh, I I think it's. Um... I think it's natural. And I was looking at an interview, watching an interview with um, Sir John Betjeman. This was years ago. So he was obviously a really famous poet and everything. And he was saying that um, he can look at 100 review, good reviews. And if there's one negative one, it just completely depresses him. Mm-hmm. It worries him for days and weeks. Yeah. Um, and that's someone who was at the top of his game, been doing it for years, had nothing to worry about or fear. Um, I think maybe I find the same if I give training. You know, when I give training or, or this teaching I'm doing at the college, um, nearly all of the feedback I get in the review that always ask students to give reviews, it's always really positive. I will always focus on that one negative one, saying yeah. I didn't do enough of X or I did too much of Y. Yeah. And I'll just it's, rant about it for days. It's like it's like something inside of our brain says, finally, someone's telling the truth. Like that one person who says the <laughs> negative thing, you're like, that person's finally telling the truth. I don't know yeah. why. Why do you put so much weight on it? It's crazy. So uh, 
I guess let's let's go to pie in the sky territory for a second, because this is something that fascinates me personally. And I assume that my listeners then are interested in it as well. Otherwise, they'd stop listening. But do you see yourself uh, on a trajectory where if you had the opportunity to be a full time writer in um, any capacity and just, you know, have have great wealth of fame and finance and all of that kind of stuff? Is that something that you would you would enjoy and pursue? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, I would love to achieve it. Although I think I, I worked out once at the present rate of growth, I'll be, if I do achieve um, financial independence on Substack, I'll be about 160 years old. Well, um, you're almost there, then I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it is satisfying when someone decides to take out a paid subscription. You know, it's very mm. nice because, as you said right at the beginning, Jody, it, it shows that someone values your work and they're willing to pay for it. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I would enjoy that. But I also like putting out stuff for free. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I only pay for one sub sack at the moment. Uh, and it's, it's because there are loads I'd love to pay for. Yes. But I just can't uh, uh, afford to do that, you know. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I suppose I could in absolute terms, but, you know, I, it, it, you know, I wouldn't have any money left. But, but yeah. uh, I think a lot of people are probably in that situation. But yeah, I think, I think the thing is about um, fame and all that and money is um, my my thing is that um, I I know that money can't buy you happiness, but I'd like to be miserable in comfort. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Would you like fame and fortune through Substack? Maybe not through Substack. I've been, I've been toying with an idea that I haven't really talked to anybody else but my wife about, but I I have been thinking about, um, having the paid corner of my subsec be my novels in progress and allowing people to see what's actually happening uh, as the draft is being made uh, and having the ability to have input and comments. And my wife is like, wait, so you're going to sell people your, your shitty drafts. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the idea. Some there's this small part of the world that might be interested in seeing how uh, the the cake is baked, I guess. So I've thought a little bit about that, Um, but in terms of what, would be my truest dream and it's been a heck of a journey already is to to have the novels be the full-time thing you know to be able to sell enough novels that i could live life on my terms um yeah that's very very appealing to me i love writing on substack i love this podcast and i had no clue how meaningful it was going to be i got sort of tricked into uh making the podcast and then coming over to substack with the assumption that it would grow my my readership of my novels which is not the case the two operate Mm. almost independently but now i can't imagine life without the podcast and you were mentioning earlier how people will say hey it was because of this that i did a master's program and that 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 sense of contribution that you get i've had people thank me for different things i put out there and just realized i can't see myself not doing this because i'm giving something to somebody and um i guess that pay it for it pay it forward idea is really powerful. Yeah. And um, let me just take, say two things. Uh, The thing about people saying how you've influenced them. I remember at another conference, um, a discussion came up and someone said, well, as Terry said, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Now I said that in a post blog post I'd written 10 years before. Oh, wow. Which nobody had commented on or responded to it was one of these i thought well so i spent an hour or two writing that blog post it's had no effect whatsoever and i was wrong Mm. 
someone took wow. it in and reproduced it 10 years later. Wow. That's one thing. The other thing is about um, the, the, uh, doing the, um, like having a page section of your of your substack for what your wife calls shitty drafts. It's <laughs> um, very Hemingway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, well, I, I've been toying with a similar idea, not so much with uh, novels, but with other other kinds of writing. But in terms mm-hmm. of novels, um, everybody uh, or everyone who's into literature is always interested in seeing um, the drafts of novels as they were being written. You know, you can yeah. go to somewhere like the British Library and there'll be an exhibition of, I don't know, Charles Dickens or someone mm. with all his handwritten corrections and everyone is fascinated. Well, the, the people who are interested in Dickens are absolutely, yes. wow, th- th- this is the process. This is how that changed from that to that. And mm-hmm. it is fascinating. And I, I, I think there is something in, in that. Uh, and, and besides, I just also think it's a it's a good thing to make people pay for that because if they think it's crap, then at least they're paying to say it's crap. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love. You know, I if love they want to say it's yeah. rubbish, then let them pay. Um, <laughs> I have I have more so in the past few months come to the understanding that uh, at least I have, and I think a lot of writers that I know have kind of flipped the model around where they think that that the 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 free giving of their work is what builds interest in the value of their work that more people are willing to pay, uh, and and I. You know, you and I have both talked about the love of giving our, our content away on Substack for free, but there's also the reality that uh, the books I sell through my Facebook ads just end up meaning more. I know that's a strange way of thinking about it, but people who have paid with never reading the book then come to the book with expectations that it's going to be worth the $5 or $10 or $20 that they paid for it. And that influences everything about the way that they engage with it. And it gives you this very clear feedback on what's happening and if you if you are defrauding somebody because if you're if you're not spending a ton of time editing thinking through revising rewriting uh you probably are actually giving people crap and and um you should be exposed eventually you could always uh, i presume do it as um very quietly to your existing paid subscribers and say yes. you know what what do you think of this is this worth me promoting more widely kind of thing yeah i don't i, I don't know yeah, I, I enjoy um, getting feedback. People talk a lot about the downsides of social media, but what I've found is that when we're really clear about why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, it seems that people want so much to reflect back to you what they see in you and in themselves. And that's I have no issues with that. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. I've never gotten involved in the political side of social media, and I think I'll keep it that way. Yeah, no, same here. And I, I, I never respond to trolls. People want to have a go. I just let them get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me a little bit about notes. Uh, I don't know if you're using it effectively. Uh, and also, I want to talk about office hours. Let's start with notes, and then let's talk about office hours, because I think I'm using office hours wrong. Uh, and I know this is a little nitty-gritty for people who don't use Substack, but it's good to understand the two. I've not had any success with notes. I can't quite figure out how to reach a larger audience. And uh, office hours, I'm not even sure what it is. I think I might think it's something that it's not. Hmm. Um, well, with notes... Um... I am using it. Whether or not I'm using it effectively, I honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've had one or two subscribers through notes. 
um, the only way I've I've done it is either to put something out which says, uh, like I did yesterday. I said, was it yesterday? Yeah, I said the solution to this mystery technique I used will be coming at four thirty today. Ah, um, yes. And um, today I sent out a note saying um, I'm finding today's um, article quite difficult to read uh, to write. I mean, the reason was I had a load of people near me making a huge amount of noise, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't say that. Um, but most mostly I use notes just to respond to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if it's any good or not. It just feel, yeah. it feels a bit more friendly than um, social media does. Um, but I honestly don't know, Jody. I don't think I've mm-hmm. had huge success with it. If, if you measure success in terms of... Um, uh, gaining subscribers, but I think it, it's a nice way of maybe putting out some content without going to the whole thing about writing something formal and mm-hmm. landing in people's in- inbox kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I can't help you there, I'm afraid. And oh, if no, you the answer, I'd love to know. Certainly not. Because these people who have said um, uh, on, oh, you know, I, I saw a huge spike in the number of subscribers I've yeah. had. I think these are people who started off with a huge number of subscribers. So their Indeed. stuff is going to get, it's like the Matthew effect, you know, to those mm. who have shall be given. I honestly think that, you know, if you, if you got 2000 subscribers or something mm. and they're all, or half of them are seeing your notes, then they're bound to pass. Some of them are bound to pass it on you. It, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. It's worth stopping at too. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the office hours. Um, but I, I think I think that's true, and that's that's the side of um, if an algorithm on Facebook is what determines virality, and a number of subscribers on Substack is what determines virality. The climb on Substack is going to take longer. Would you agree? I yeah. would. Yeah, definitely. I but then would. once once you have it, it's going to be more predictable, more reproducible, and. If you're if you're responsible and ethical about what you're doing, uh, you're gonna you're gonna do a lot of good if you make that climb. That does that seem yes. true as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, really, as for office hours, I yeah. found the best thing to do there is to um, um, I find if I just kind of say something that maybe helps someone, or you know, or if I um, so, you know, sometimes I'll kind of say, look, you need to have a look at so and so's Substack. It's really good. Uh, that, yeah. that seems to get some good kind of feedback in terms of a few extra subscribers. Mm-hmm. The thing is what I'm concerned about, you know, and I suppose it's like um, if you were doing good works and someone said you're building up really good karma for your next incarnation, yeah. then part of me thinks, God, that's going to screw everything up because now I'm thinking <laughs> now of I these karmic points. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just worry that if I start thinking, well, if I put this – post out or this note or comment this might get me another five subscribers you're kind of doing it all for the wrong reasons right (laughs) i know i know i think about that constantly i actually do think about that i don't know for me if there is a way to detach myself from the hopes that the things that i am doing uh will will come back to me i I, maybe maybe that is part of that ego i mentioned earlier but I, I think about it all the time and I'm like, well, maybe I just ruined all of my future rewards by by just simply wanting them. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good subscriber base. You have a really active following. Never a post goes by that doesn't get some good interaction. 
you have people, I think, that are really enjoying what you're doing. Um, do you think of what you're what you're writing on Substack as as a an outgrowth of your love of teaching, or is it something else? What the question I'm asking, without using the word, I guess, is what do you view Terry Terry's brand to be? Um, I think it probably is an outgrowth of teaching in the sense that one of the things I loved about teaching was um, sharing things I found out um, and um, hearing what other people had found out. And and and, that, and that's also what I like about Substack. You know, I like if, if I've read something that's really good, I like writing about it and sharing that on Substack. And um, also, um, I, ju- I just love writing for its own sake. And it's just kind of I, one of the things I decided when I went on to Substack is that I want to write about anything I feel like writing about, whereas yeah. before, whatever I've written about has been part of a niche to do with education or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if I want to write about an interaction that happened in a cafe, I want to write about that and just see what happens. And it, it's just great fun, you know. Yeah. So I suppose Terry's brand is um, uh, probably that I'm all, all over the place. So um, I'm not I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's funny. Every time I ask a question like this or similar to this, I get a kind of a similar response. And it's true of me as well as I can't tell you exactly what I think my brand is. I generally have an idea of what I'm trying to accomplish. But uh, even that is maybe a little bit vague. Yeah, I want to sell a lot of novels. And that's probably where it ends. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I do love writing. I like writing similar essays. I'm drawn to your essays where you talk about your life and your experience. Um, what is... There's something inside of that that is helping other people. I guess talk to me about a, a Substack that you read that you that helps you. Talk talk to me about a Substack that helps you. That I think will give me the answer that I'm really looking to is how you are trying to help other people. Well, a Substack that I read that I find helpful. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, well, there are so many of them. Um, and um, well, I mention a couple if I may. Uh, one is by someone called Nathan Slake, who writes a substack called Slake. And um, funny enough, I, I was looking at his stuff today. And um, I, and I, I'm really enjoying his stuff because he writes in a very um, sensory kind of way, um, which is something I never do. I just kind of tell it how it is and can't be bothered with all the, you know, trying to build a picture. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually learning... Um, well, I think I'm going to learn from reading his stuff how to write in a way that evokes people's senses, you see. Um, so that's helpful. Um, I've also been enjoying um, the the letters I do with Rebecca Holden, um, and I'm learning from her because her, her, her writing is really, really nice, and um, so are her drawings, which are a hell of a lot better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll realistic. have to talk about yours though. I enjoy I enjoy your drawings. Right. So <laughs> um and um I yeah, I I don't know if I find them helpful, but I do find them incredibly enjoyable. And yeah. um Rebecca's fantastic because she gives so much makes so many comments. Um, you know, you, you always know you've got an audience there, you know. <laughs> yeah. And she's good at faking it. I think she might think it's rubbish, but she well, so, <laughs> <laughs> We'll find out. I'll have to. I'll have to take her to task after this and find out what she's thinking. <laughs> but I'm. I'm pretty <laughs> sure she doesn't. Uh, 
yours obviously is is one which is the reason I invited you onto the podcast. I find I find your work to be helpful. For me, the reason is is that I can't get through reading one of your posts without thinking and the act of reflecting uh is is valuable to me. There's another guy, Michael Moore, not uh from Michigan who who <laughs> writes a stack that I really really enjoy. Um he can be hit or miss, but when he's hit, he's very much he just causes me to think and i've really appreciated he is one person who will touch on the political a little bit and i found mm. that um he's doing it in such a way that is really opens up a conversation um the, 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 there's an article i'm thinking of specifically where he talked about the experience of being a white man and trying to engage in conversations about uh racism uh and sexism and things like that that we sit at the top of this pyramid and and he was kind of questioning some of the ways and like, you can't stop me from trying to investigate and interrogate life. And if you do, it hurts everybody. Um, I just really appreciated that article. It gave me an opportunity to think um, because especially in writing, and I don't know how much this happens on Substack. I don't see it as much, but I do see it inside of academia is uh, white men are being told to shut up justfully. So I think, but trying to figure out how to, navigate through that has been a challenge for me. And I think that Michael's words were really helpful in framing a thought exercise more than anything else. So hmm. I probably already stepped too far into the political, even making that comment, but um, that's, that is the way that, that some stacks have helped me that I really enjoy reading. Um, so if you're listening and you're not into Substack, please check out at least those four. There's, I think lots other that are, that are so good. I will mention, I guess, Shane, um, I can't think of his whole letter, but he actually writes about uh, farming and a different kind of farming. And I really enjoy it. I know nothing about farming, but the way that he thinks about land and watering and crops and, and what will grow where or why, um, you never think of being interested in something like that. But Substack has given us a place to encounter the unlikely. Mm. And I should know this, but are you teaching at the moment as well? Well, if I can do a little advert, I, yeah, please. I am going to be teaching a course in um, the Ulipo um, online on the 10th and 11th of June. Um, and, you know, the ULIPO is the movement, that writing movement that uses constraints uh, and the experimenting style posts are part of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just kind of giving people um, uh, ideas for their writing because um, I find that a good way of, of breaking writer's block is not to to splurge everything that comes out, but to actually say, okay, I'm going to use such and such a constraint. I'm not going to use the letter E or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that, wow, that really makes you think and you start producing all sorts of stuff, not necessarily good stuff, but it, yeah. it breaks the, breaks that barrier, you know? Mm. Um, so I'm going to be teaching a course in that. And then at some point I'll be teaching a course in blogging. Cause I still think, there's room for that. Yes. Um, but, but, but that's it. I'd love to do more teaching actually, but I, I do enjoy teaching. I love the interaction yeah. and everything. Absolutely. I've, I've told my wife many times before that I would gladly spend the rest of my life in college, just taking more and more courses. I, I find learning to be fascinating. <laughs> um, it just happens to be really expensive. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you're going to be teaching that and how can people sign up for it? I want to make sure I have links in the show notes when, when I drop this episode. Oh, right. Yes. Well, I'll send you the links, but, um, or the link rather, but, um, um, 
It's a, a website called the City Lit, citylit.ac.uk. Okay. You just search through Lippo and it will come up. Now, the, the only problem might be for some people is that on each day, the course goes from 10.30 a.m. till 1 p.m. British okay. time. So ah. um, if you're living in uh, Los Angeles, you'd have to start at 2.30 a.m., which might Ooh. be – you'd have to be very dedicated. Yeah. Um, slightly more doable, I think, if you're in New York, because that would be 5.30 a.m., mm-hmm. but obviously not great. Um, so, But it, it would suit people who live in Europe – Possibly people who live in Australia. I'm not sure because I yeah. think they're ahead. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure how it works like that. That's one thing, you know. Um, I used to have these uh, online conferences or meetings like this yeah. with university professors, really highly educated people, mm-hmm. and none of us could ever work out what the correct time was to meet. Because <laughs> you know, we'd yeah. all say, "Wait a minute, is that five o'clock your time, or is it six o'clock my time? What is it?" <laughs> Uh, just drove us all. We'd all turn up all different times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've I've had that so many times. Uh, I had a, a job not not so long ago, uh, and I just received a promotion into kind of a, a, a pretty good management position. Uh, and the very first manager's meeting was a Zoom meeting like this. And I had happened to cross over into Arizona and didn't realize that Arizona didn't observe daylight savings time. So I thought I was in a certain hour and like, Halfway through, I get a, a text from the guy who was to be my boss, and he's like, "Did you decide you didn't want the job, or what's going on?" And I was like, "What do you <laughs> oh, mean? No. <laughs> oh no, yeah." So I had ended up having a decent excuse, but uh, it's happened to me on this podcast too, where where it's just very difficult to figure out what time people are on. I think I'm assuming it's about six o'clock for you right now, but uh, well, it's coming up to seven. Yeah, all right. There we, we go. Started at six, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's the, what time is it where you are then? About one o'clock. 1 p.m. Oh, okay. So you're what six hours behind? Yeah, about six hours behind. So where are you then? Uh, I'm in Central Time, so Chicago time. But um, I'm I'm just north of Omaha, Nebraska. Most people call it flyover territory. I am personally really in love with the city of Omaha. I think it's a great place. Oh yeah, I've never been there. I've been to the East Coast and the West. No, I haven't been. Yeah, Yeah, I've been to Boston. Okay, and I've been to Arizona and Los Angeles and San Diego, but never been in the middle. The middle is good, in my opinion. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. The Rocky Mountains are something to see. I think I took them for granted because I grew up there. Um, but the the rugged mountains are are really, really something. Um, Tell me something, Jody. Do you find? Yeah. I mean, you, you may not want to include this in the podcast, but something I'm finding: um, there are people on on Substack like yourself, uh, someone called Brad Kyle. I'm not sure where he is. He's in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to meet in real life. That I just yeah. feel that I could sit down, have a meal and a coffee with them or a beer. Do you, yeah. do, you know, do you find that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm 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 shocked by and not just Substack too. For me, I had a, a really great run on Twitter for quite a long time. And I know so many people on Twitter that I genuinely hope somehow along the way to meet because they've had huge impact on my life. And, and uh, yeah, I find them fascinating. And even though this is a great conversation, there is something about that idea of having a pint with somebody and, you know, sitting at the same table in, in real life that I think just enriches the experience. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So lastly, let's wrap up by talking about your drawings because 
I'm actually suspicious, and I maybe maybe I even remember this from one of your articles that your drawings had something to do with with writer's block as well, or that they helped kind of inspire some of your writing. You really have embraced the stick figure drawing um, and the silliness of it and the youthfulness of of drawing. So how did that all come about? I, I discovered at school um, that I'm completely and utterly useless at drawing. You know, <laughs> if I have to, if I have to. I'll have to draw something. You know, the teacher would say, just do what's in front of you. And it would come out looking, you know, like I remember once the teacher said, when cars go round corners, they don't bend, you know, and I said, yeah, well, they ought to. <laughs> It'd make life a lot, a lot. But I did find for some reason or other, when I drew cartoons, people seemed to just like them. And, yeah. and, and someone, I think it was someone called Rennie Faber, on Substack said that somehow I managed to encapsulate a whole idea in just a few lines. Mm. Um, and I did a couple of drawings of uh, famous paintings like Ophelia drowning and the Mona Lisa. <laughs> yes. People said it made them really laugh yes. um, and the scream, you know. Yep. And I think you said, I, I love the way uh, you, you managed to make the person in the scream also look like Ophelia drowning. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the recent one I did of Charles and Camilla, people seem to like that, even though it's completely and utterly daft. It's mad. <laughs> um, but I think that's what I like. I just like the, um, I just kind of enjoy the zaniness of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, I, I suppose it all comes from being told I was useless at art at school. Or it's my way of getting my revenge. <laughs> You know, embrace the uselessness. That's my motto. I, I, I'm going to have to be careful because my oldest son is is uh, pitch deaf. He can't hear pitch to save his life, and he has no rhythm. And yet he just loves music, and, and we've been telling him not to quit his day job, but I, I better be careful. <laughs> I really enjoy your drawings. You do capture something, which uh, probably goes to prove something about the idea that if you want to be a writer, if you want to be an artist, if you want to be a musician um, – find access to the things that you're good at and embrace them. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Bob Dylan is not a good singer. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure that that's true. And yet his work is deeply meaningful to me. I don't know if he's good at the instruments and whatnot, but. And as someone who plays the harmonica, I don't, I don't like his harmonica playing, but somehow it seems to work. I suppose if you accept that it's not good in the conventional sense of what you would expect it of being good, like mm -hmm. my drawings, then, then they're fine. They work. It all works on its own level, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it <laughs> does. I had to toyed around with the idea of trying an actual, like, in well, not in person, but live version of an experiment in style. But I knew this morning when I woke up, I was like, I, I'm, I'm good for a conversation. You're the second podcast I've, I've talked to today, but I, I'm a little, like, just slightly melancholy. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to try to force it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to force the uh, experiments in style live. But if I have you on again, um, we should definitely try that. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about the experiments in style? Cause that might be one thing I left off is giving you the actual opportunity to talk a bit more about that process. I mean, how many have you done so far, for example? Oh, goodness. Um, I can't remember how many I've done. I've actually got a list of, um, when I started on the project, I made a list of about 112 possible styles. And um, I think some of them are going to be impossible to do, to be uh, perfectly frank. And um, I think it's, it's about 20 so far. Yeah. So I've got a way to go. Um, 
So I'm, I'm just kind of at the moment keeping on with them roughly on, uh, well, once a week, just trying to get mm-hmm. through. But I'm enjoying doing it because it's just pushing things for me. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the penultimate one I did um, used um, a technique called an isogram, which is where you can't use a word which uses any one letter more than once. And mm. nearly every word we have, like, or I had, headache, um, yeah, you know, uh, sickness, or, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that has always got more than one letter. So I was mm-hmm. tying myself in knots trying to find alternatives. But <laughs> I think on, on looked at in one way, it's completely pointless. But in another way, it... It does make you mm. think, well, I, I once read, and I think this is true, that there are no synonyms in English. There are, there are words which kind of mean almost the same, but never quite yeah. the same. So when you actually try and find a synonym, it's a lot because the word you've used has a certain nuance and implications yes. and all of that. Um, it's actually really, really quite hard. And um, one idea that people might like to try, it's a technique called... Um, uh, definitionals or definitions and it's where instead of using the actual word you use the definition of it and um, I discovered from that in a piece of writing that I'd use the word I too many times because when you put it in as a definition it became the person who's writing this and then the next sentence will be the person who's writing this thinks the person who's writing this did this <laughs> and, and you think my god this is so boring uh-huh. And that actually made me change the whole structure and the way I was reading. Yeah. So it's actually a very, very useful exercise. So it's definitely something worth doing. But but there's one, for example, is called a lipogram, one technique called a lipogram, very famous technique. You leave out a certain letter, like, for example, the letter E. I have been racking my brains thinking, how can I write that story about banging my head without using the letter E? Yeah. Um, because the word hey, you know, what would I or a cranium? I suppose I could use the word cranium, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it becomes very convoluted. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun too. On that note, it's funny. Well, not exactly that note, but what you were talking about the word I. I heard uh, sometime back. I don't remember exactly how long. I want to say I was living in Spokane, Washington at the time. That people who perceive themselves as inferior to the address E will use the word I more frequently than people who view themselves as superior to the addressee will use words like you or them or they. Interestingly enough, like the more insecure you feel, the more you say I. And now every time I write an email to somebody, especially if I'm pitching to have have them on my podcast or I'm pitching to be on their podcast, I will go through, I will comb through and find ways to write the whole email without using the word I because I want them to feel like I'm equal to them or something. I don't even know if it works, but I just heard that. And it's interesting how these these ideas and, and styles permeate yeah. uh, everything we do. That is interesting. I wonder if it's because subconsciously you're kind of trying to overcompensate yeah. your feelings of, in, you know, you're basically saying, oh, it's me, it's me. I'm, yes. I'm the person too. <laughs> yes. This has been fantastic. I, I imagine I'll reach back out to you to have you on again. Um We'll get the links to your course. Uh, it's called Olipo. Is that right? Yes. All right. O U L I P O. Perfect. We'll have a link to that in my show notes. Uh, that'll go out to all of my Substack subscribers, as well as anybody who listens through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that uh, pods are cast. 
and people can find you on Substack. So I'll have a link for that as well. Do you like people to engage with you anywhere else off of Substack? Um, yeah. I mean, um, I'm on Twitter in a couple of places um, okay. at T Friedman writer and at Terry Friedman. I'll, I'll send you those links. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't tend not to do very much on Facebook or, um, or LinkedIn, quite frankly, but yeah, Twitter, I'm happy, but especially Substack, it'd be great to uh, have people on Substack, especially if I've got newsletters, it's lovely to exchange ideas and cross-subscribe, if that's a word. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, you know what? Okay, I said we were done, but one more question I want to ask you, and this is almost selfish of me, but I want to know, do you ever ever worry that inside of Substack, the one flaw that hasn't been addressed is the fact that all of us are writers. So at some point, it's it, it becomes untenable. You said early on in this conversation, you subscribe to one as a paying member because it's just not really feasible to subscribe to all the ones that you necessarily read. Is the same thing kind of happening where we're sending out our, our, our stack to other writers, but I really want to reach readers where I don't necessarily have to reciprocate. Have you thought about that before? I, I do, and I never know what the, the right answer is. I, I, I went through a, a phase of um, every time someone subscribed to me, I would subscribe back. Mm-hmm. But I don't do it so much now, mainly because I think, well, I'm, I don't know how many Substacks I subscribe to, but I'm finding it really hard just reading them all. And, yes. and it's kind of... Um, it, it, in a way, it's a bit dishonest to subscribe on. Maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, some, you're raising people's expectations. If, in a way, if you subscribe to their Substack and never comment because you haven't had time to read it properly, that that's kind of wrong in its own way, isn't it? Um, so, but I never, I, to be honest, Jody, I don't know. There, there's so much great writing on Substack, and. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard. One thing I, I do find, though, um, is that if I subscribe to someone and I can't comment on any of their posts because only paid people can, I oh. usually end up losing interest and, and unsubscribing because I just think, well, what, what's the point? I've got an opinion on this, but I can't express it. So I'll yeah. leave it. Um, so, uh, that, that, I, you know, that, that stops me from doing that now. I did try it at first, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't like that very much, but no, I haven't worked it out. I 100% agree with you. I think it, it can be really frustrating. I've I've read through and had really strong opinions about an article and gone to comment and realized that only paying subscribers can and felt, I don't know, like angered. I almost felt like they wasted my time all of a sudden. And then there's much more to it than that. But like I really deeply invested yes. in this and I wanted to say something and I can't. So. Yes. It'd be almost better if it flagged up at the beginning saying, you can yes. read this, but you can't comment. Yes. Um, and then you'd know whether you want to invest the time. Absolutely. And if you did invest the time, you wouldn't feel cheated. They should do that. I'm going to suggest it. Uh, did we get to office hours? I guess my own question, and then then we'll truly, truly be done, is in office hours, is it true that it's just that, that thread that you click on from the email and then you can read through the comments and comment yourself or you can leave a comment? Or is there something more to it? Is it more interactive and I'm not realizing it? Um, well, there are bits of interaction. But what I'm finding is, is that, you know, there are thousands of or hundreds of comments mm-hmm. and they whiz through so quickly that it, it's almost impossible to keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost never go back to it afterwards. Yeah. And and I also find that I'll, I'll 
have a thing come up saying so and so liked your comment, and I think what comment? And it was <laughs> a comment I made three days ago in office hours, and I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten all about it. I haven't, yeah. haven't a clue what the context was or anything. Yeah. Um, so it's nice of them to like it, but it, it's kind of <laughs> not 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 great in that sense. Um, I, I do like the way they've been organising them recently. I don't know if you've been into it recently, but they've. they've because I think they realised that it was almost impossible for anyone to keep up with mm -hmm. all the comments. They've divided it into strands. So, like, if you're a new person on Substack, yeah. click here. And if if you're wanting to grow a bit, then then click here. Mm -hmm. um, and and I find that a lot more manageable. Yeah, I have seen that. I have, I have to say, I have found um, I have found people on Substack in office hours that I wanted to subscribe to through office hours. Because I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. Had a quick look at their Substack and then mm -hmm. subscribe before I forget who they are. Um, so I think, think it's good for getting um, – it's good for other people to get me to subscribe, but not necessarily the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Really enjoyed the time today. Um, I'll continue to read your, your newsletter with enthusiasm, and uh, I really appreciate – what you bring to the world. You're, you're a very thoughtful person. Um, and so I'm, I'm just going to pin you down one more time and say you are, you're, you're just brilliant and I enjoy you a lot. Oh, thank you very much. But you know what? Did you read, did you listen to the podcast I did with um, Kate Waller? I didn't. That was on the ULIP. She interviewed me about the ULIPO and she was asking me about experiments in style and I took your name in vain, I'm afraid. I, oh, I said, no. Yeah, I, I, I said at the end, I said, um, Jody Sperling, who is on Substack, um, <laughs> says that my Substack is worth subscribing to just for ex experiments in style alone. I, That's right. I said, which um, shows you that he's got pretty low standards. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?